Our text this morning is found in John chapter 16. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 16 and follow along as I begin reading for us in the first, the first verse. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me concerning righteousness because I go to the father and you will see me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What is the context For these verses, we always need to be careful when we open God's word, always need to be careful that we don't turn to a verse or a chapter in isolation and wrench it from its context and begin to interpret it. Because when we remove it from its context, we can fall prey to all sorts of misinterpretations and misapplications. So what is the context for the for these verses, for what Christ has to say In this portion of God's word. Well, back in chapter 15, uh, the first 17 verses, uh, you may remember that in those verses, Christ exhorts us to abide in him. He tells us that he is the vine. His father is the vine dresser. And so he commands us. He compels us. He exhorts us to abide in him, to commune in him. As C.H. Spurgeon says, I must take care above all that I cultivate communion with Christ. Why? Well, Christ tells us, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so our chief goal as Christians, our chief responsibility, our chief duty, our chief joy, our chief delight is to daily find rest for our souls in the Lord Jesus Christ. Incidentally, 
That's what we have been trying to do at 9 o'clock in our adult Sunday school, in our Bible class. That is exactly what we have been doing for the past six, seven, eight Sunday mornings. We've been talking about these three pillars of, of Bible intake. That includes reading the Bible, studying the Bible, memorizing the Bible, hearing sermons, the Bible declared and taught. And we've talked, secondly, of meditating upon Scripture, of asking ourselves in reflection and in quiet moments, in solitude, uh, what does the Bible teach me about God, about His glory, about the beauty of Christ, about the finality of death, about the glory of heaven, about the, the danger of hell. What, what does the Bible say about these things? And to ask ourselves, secondly, what duty does God require of me? And having asked those questions, having meditated upon the Word of God, having thought these three things do and by the Spirit through, and having the Spirit of God impress them upon our hearts, we then pray. And we pour out our praise and adoration as we celebrate God's worship. And then we begin to confess our sin and our shortcomings and our failures. We bring our many, our multitude of petitions and requests before Him. And in so doing, we do not do these things. We do not do them legalistically. We do not approach them following some set formula that we think in and of themselves will somehow make us more godly. No, our end in view, the goal, the purpose, our desire, all the while is to draw near to Christ. It is to walk daily with Christ. I beg of you this morning, please understand, Christian, that that is the essence of the Christian journey. That as God looks down upon us and as we live our lives before His face, our lives an open book, please understand, He is not impressed by our busyness. He is not impressed in the first instance by our perceived service for Him. He is not primarily concerned in all of our programs and ministries that we offer here as a church. Dare I say, I'm extremely thankful for the addition going up. But this is not something that occupies God's thoughts for foremost above all else. When God looks down on His children, when He looks down upon us, what He has designed for us, what He desires for us, is that daily we abide in Christ. So before I go any further this morning, Christian, let me just simply ask you, is that you? Do you make it your number one priority each day to rejoice in the Lord? To find Him in His Word? And to hear the Spirit speak through the Word? To reflect on these great truths concerning God and Christ and the Spirit and the Gospel and life eternal? Do, 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 does your, is your mind absorbed with these things? Is your heart Stirred with these things. Oh, how they must be our chief priority. Our principal concern. For again, in the words of Christ, apart from me, you can do nothing. I am helpless apart from Christ. And so from the moment I get up in, this morning, in the morning, how I must make it my number one priority 
to abide in the vine. When I do, there's a result, isn't there? A Christ-likeness. The character of the vine is reproduced in the branches. And I become more and more like the Lord Jesus, as Charles Haddon Spurgeon says, a Christian. Oh, a Christian should be a striking likeness of Christ. Am I a striking likeness of Christ? Are you a striking likeness of the Lord Jesus? Well, that is the result. That is the consequence. That is the, the net result of our daily abiding in Him, communing in Him, finding our soul's rest and satisfaction and delight in the Lord Jesus. That's what we have in a nutshell in the first 17 verses of John chapter 15. As we move on in John chapter 15, the second half, verses 18 through 27, we discover how the world will respond to us, how the world will respond to us if we are indeed like the Lord Jesus. What the world will think of us if we do indeed bear fruit. And in a word, the world will hate us. And the Lord Jesus gives three reasons why. First of all, he tells us that the world will hate us because it hates Christ. Now, the servant isn't any greater than his master. And so if the world hates Christ, if the world crucified Christ, if the world despised Christ, uh, we can from time to time expect Exactly the same response, precisely the same attitude on the part of the world toward us. He tells us, secondly, the world will hate us because Christ has chosen us out of it. And he has made us different. He has made us nonconformists. And you think, for example, let your mind travel to Matthew chapter 5 and the Beatitudes. And you think of what the Lord Jesus says there. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. In those attributes, in those beatitudes, and as the Lord goes on in Matthew chapter 5, we see this character, this Christ-likeness, so precious in God's sight. What is the last beatitude? Blessed are you when you are persecuted. For righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for my name's sake. In other words, those who manifest the life described in the Beatitudes can expect the world's hostility because they are different from the world. And Christ has called us out. Christ has chosen us out of the world. Then he adds a third reason in these verses. He tells us that the world will hate us because the world does not know the Father. Now, the world, simply put, doesn't know God. Now, that's true of the secularist who denies God's existence. Or at very least says if God does exist, he dwells on the periphery and is of absolute no, absolutely no consequence whatsoever to our lives here on earth. That's true of the secularist. He does not know the Father. It's true of every religious group. It's true of the Jew. It's true of the Muslim. It's true of the Buddhist. You listen to John's words in 1 John 2.22. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one denies the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. 
So all other religious groups on the face of this world constituting what we call the world reprobate humanity are idolatrous by definition because they fail to worship God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And their attitude toward the Son reveals their attitude toward God. As Christ Himself makes it clear, those who hate Me hate My Father also. And so the world hates us. Why? Because we declare the exclusivity of the Lord Jesus. We declare that Christ alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father apart from Him. And so the Lord Jesus makes it clear in these verses, the world will hate you. And it will hate you because it does not know the Father. And the Lord Jesus remains with the same train of thought as we enter into the 16th chapter. And in the opening verses there, He describes that the world's hour is coming as it pertains to His disciples A time is coming, verse 2, when they will put you out of the synagogues. We already saw something of that back in John chapter 9, where where, where one who was healed by the Lord Jesus was excommunicated from the synagogue. And this is going to happen to you. Even It's going to be worse than that. He continues in verse 2. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And we see it fulfilled, do we not, in the book of Acts. We see it beginning right there on the day of Pentecost. We see it as the apostles proclaim the gospel. As the early church proclaims and lives out the gospel. There is this reaction, there is this persecution on the part of the Jews to such an extent that in that letter to the church of Smyrna, in Revelation chapter 2, Christ, the Lord of the church, can refer to those who think they are Jews but are indeed the synagogue of Satan. Why? Because of their attitude toward the disciples of Christ and the followers of Christ. And there is this terrible persecution. And that, that is replaced more or less in 64, 65 A.D. when the Romans begin to persecute the church. And we see during the reign of Nero the martyrdom of Paul and of Peter and of the slaughter of Christians in the city of Rome. And this is a, there is a, this hostility and this animosity which has reared its ugly head in different places at different times in different manners throughout the centuries, throughout the entire history of the church, right down to the present day. Christ foretells it. He prophesies it. He says, this is the way it's going to be. And at the outset, we go back to the earliest days of the church. That term martyr, meaning witness, martyrus in the Greek, is used to apply, it is designated toward, to those individuals to describe those who actually seal their testimony concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with their own blood. Let me just insert a thought here for what it's worth. There is no such thing as a Muslim martyr. It's actually an oxymoron. Someone who kills other people and takes their own life is not a martyr. They are a murderer. They are suicidal. They are a terrorist. The word martyr applies to no one other than Christians who have laid down their lives 
sealed their testimony to Christ as Lord and Savior with their own life blood, their life taken from them. The Lord Jesus tells the disciples, that is precisely what's going to happen to you. Oh, how daunting it must have been to them. Don't you think? How depressing it must have been. Somewhat discouraging, I dare say. And how depressing and discouraging it can be for us here this morning. When we think of what the Lord Jesus says, and he describes this scene, this hostility between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, this hatred that would exist between Christ's kingdom, the devil's kingdom, this hatred and animosity that will exist between the world and those who are called out of the world. Oh, how we could be so discouraged by that. And how it seems so so daunting and frightening and overwhelming. So where do we turn for encouragement? Where do we find our hope and comfort? Where can we possibly find solace in the light of such a depressing and discouraging scenario as described by the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the answer is found in chapter 16. The good news comes in chapter 16. Essentially, what the Lord does in this chapter, and we're not going to get through all of this this morning. Essentially, what he does is he gives four reasons Why we as Christians, even when faced with the world's animosity, should be encouraged. Let me give these four reasons to you at the outset. We're only going to consider the first this morning. Uh, Tim is going to be here next Sunday. Uh, The Sunday after that is Reformation Sunday, so we're going to go somewhere else. And so it's going to be well into November before we get back to the other three motives for being encouraged in the face of the world's hatred. But let me give you all four right now. They're very simple. Christ, we have, we have a helper, a helper sent by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the one we're going to look at this morning. The second is this. We have a savior. The third is as follows. We have a mediator. And the fourth is simply this. We have a conqueror. And so as Christians, let me repeat it. As Christians, we can be encouraged. We find our comfort and hope and solace in these four indisputable facts, truths. We have a helper. We have a savior. We have a mediator. And we have a conqueror. Now, we only have time this morning to consider the first. We have a helper. And we read of this helper beginning in the middle of verse 4, all the way through to where I ended our scripture reading, verse 15. And what the Lord Jesus, let me help you get your mind around this, what the Lord Jesus basically does in these verses is he describes this helper, whom we know to be the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, in three different relationships. And so firstly, in verses 5, 6, and 7, he describes this helper, the relationship that exists between the helper and the Lord, Jesus Christ. And then secondly, in verses 8 through 11, he describes the relationship that exists between the helper and this world that hates us. And then thirdly, in verses 12 through 15, he describes the relationship between the helper and the believer. So that's the outline we're going to follow this morning. That is the gist. That is the essence of what the Lord Jesus has to say in these verses. So we return to the first. 
The relationship between the helper and the Lord. Turn with me to verse 5. And look at what Christ says there. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? Now that should strike us as odd. Why? We were in chapter 13 not that long ago. And in verse 36 of chapter 13, what does Peter ask? Where are you going? And now the Lord Jesus says, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? Didn't Peter ask that very question, but moments before the Lord Jesus made this statement, utter these words? Yes and no. It's true, on the one hand, Peter uttered the words, but Peter's motive in asking the question was misplaced. When Peter said, Lord, where are you going? He was not the least bit concerned in where Christ was actually going, his point of destination. That was not in the forefront of Peter's thoughts. When Peter said, where are you going? Essentially, he was asking this. Are you leaving me? Are you abandoning us? So his heart, his mind was not focused on where Christ was going, ascending to the Father. His mind was not caught up with what that would signify and with the repercussions and the consequences and the results of that. No, Peter was focused on himself. The question was self-motivated. Are you abandoning us? Are you taking off, so to speak? And that's why the Lord Jesus says in verse 6, he continues, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Because you see, you're only defining these things as they affect you right now in the present, here now, your little lives. You're not seeing the big picture. You don't see the the, the cosmic significance of my ascension to the Father. You have no understanding of what that will mean for you. And so no one has asked me where I am going. No one is truly concerned as to the fact that I am ascending to the Father's right hand. No one is truly concerned with what will be the implications of my coronation and of my exaltation. Here's the truth, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. This is a remarkable statement. It is to your advantage that I go away. I have I have spoken to Christians, not many. I've spoken to some who have who have expressed um, this desire, this longing, this dream, this wish uh, to have lived when Jesus was here on the earth. I've thought that once or twice myself. Oh, how wonderful that would have been. How wonderful it would have been to have walked uh, along the shore of Galilee with the Lord Jesus. How wonderful it would have been when he had when he calmed the storm with but a word. When that paralytic was lowered through the ceiling. Remember, the rooftop was opened up. The paralytic set before the Lord Jesus and the Lord Jesus healed him. How wonderful it would have been to have to have stood there at the tomb when the Lord Jesus cried, Lazarus, come forth. Oh, if only I had lived back then, I'll tell you, I'd never sin again. I would be a super fantastic spiritual Christian and I would vanquish my sin once for all, mortify self and pride. All would be rosy. All would be wonderful. Praise God. What does the Lord Jesus say? I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go 
away. Let me put it in other words, if if I may, this morning. You will be better off without me. That's what he's saying. Your situation, you, your predicament, your your Christian journey that, that you find yourself on, you will be better off. You will be better served. It is to your advantage that I not be here but that I go away. Well, that we just can't leave it at that. That requires some explanation, doesn't it? And he gives it as he continues on there in the same verse, the seventh verse. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, we need to grasp those words in the context of what we call the covenant of redemption. When we speak of the covenant of redemption, we we, we are referring to this, this work of the triune God, this divine order, this divine plan concerning the salvation of God's people. Christ makes it clear in John's gospel account. It's made clear in Paul's epistle to the Romans. It's made clear in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians that God chose his people when? Before the foundation of the world. There is the work, the principal work in the covenant of redemption on the part of God the Father. God the Son in the covenant of redemption agrees, agrees to the incarnation agrees to take to himself our humanity, agrees to fulfill all righteousness on our behalf, agrees to go to the cross. He agrees, as he says right back there in chapter 13, verse 1, to love his own, those whom the Father gave him before the foundation of the world. He agrees to come and secure their redemption. All whom the Father has given to me, All will come to me. I will lose none of those whom the Father has given to me. But you see, the Spirit has a role too. We have God the Father in His work of election. We have God the Son in His work of redemption. And we have God the Spirit in His work of sanctification. Whereby Christ, God's Son, having fulfilled the covenant of redemption, having fulfilled all righteousness, having died as a penal substitutionary sacrifice on behalf of his people, now ascends on high, sits down at the right hand of God, presents himself as a sacrifice once for all finished and complete, and from his ascended glory now sends the Spirit of God to complete that work by bringing us to faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Peter can preach on the day of Pentecost, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise Of the Holy Spirit. He, that is Christ, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. It's a one-time event. It is a historical event 
We are all baptized by one spirit into one body, whereby the spirit having been poured forth, whereby the spirit having been sent by from the glorified Christ now indwells his people, making us one with the resurrected, exalted, coronated, glorified Christ. The disciples knew nothing of that. It is to your advantage that I go away. Because when I go away, this great covenant of redemption will be completed. The Spirit of God will be sent. And that Spirit of God through that baptism will make you one with me. Whereby I will become your king. A triumphant king reigning in your hearts. Whereby I will become your priest. A priest who not only has lived this perfect life on your behalf. A priest that has not only died at Calvary's cross for your sins, paying the penalty for your sins, but a priest who is now seated in the throne room of God himself, guaranteeing your acceptance with the Almighty. And I will become your prophet. And the Spirit will live and abide in you. He will give you the truth, the word. And he will lead you into all truth, whereby I will continue to teach you. I will continue to minister to you. Oh, my delusional disciples, it is to your advantage that I go away. None of you has asked me, where am I going? You're too busy living in the here and now. What does that mean for me? What's that going to do for me? Oh, and all this and on and on and on it goes. No, get, get outside of yourselves. See the glorious picture. See the plan of redemption. And behold the significance of where it is I am going to. And what that will mean in terms of your salvation through the pouring out of the Spirit of God. That's the first relationship that the Lord Jesus describes. This connection between Him and the Holy Spirit. He moves on to describe a second relationship between the Helper and the world. Verse 8, that world that hates him. That world that hates anyone who looks like him or talks like him. Anyone whom he has chosen out of the world. How will the Holy Spirit interact with this world? Verse 8, when he comes, he will convict. Convict. Two senses in Scripture. We convict in the sense of convincing someone of something. Right? And so the Spirit of God at times works in the heart of the unbeliever, convinces the unbeliever of the truth, convinces the unbeliever of their sinfulness and of their need to believe and repent. That's one sense in which the term convict is used in Scripture. At other times, the term convict simply means to condemn, to judge. And so a criminal can be convicted without experiencing any conviction. Did you catch that? A criminal can be convicted Judged, condemned, sentenced, passed, without ever experiencing any conviction, without ever being convinced. Well, in this context here, the Lord Jesus is referring to the work of the Spirit of God in condemning, in passing judgment. He will convict the world. Concerning what? Three things. Sin and righteousness and judgment. What does that mean? He doesn't leave us hanging. He tells us in verses 9 and 10 concerning sin. Here's what I mean by that. Because they do not 
believe in me. We saw that back in chapter 15. Turn back just briefly. Verse 22 of the 15th chapter. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Verse 24. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated Both me and my father. That is precisely what the Lord Jesus has in view here in verse 9 concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Here we get to the root of sin. Here we get to the cause of all sin going all the way back to Adam and Eve. Every sin that has ever been committed under the sun at its foundation, at its root, lies the sin of unbelief. I don't believe what God said. I don't believe God. Or if I, if, I, if I believe in God, I don't really think God cares. Or if I think God cares, I don't really think he notices. At any rate, I just don't believe. And as an expression of that unbelief, there is a rejection of God's revelation culminating in a rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he explains righteousness, verse 10, concerning righteousness. Because I go to the Father... And you will see me no longer. What does that mean? Well, the world crucified Christ as a criminal. The world essentially accused Christ of unrighteousness. The world accused Christ of being a sinner, a lawbreaker, someone who merited, deserved, earned what he was getting. And yet the Father... By and through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, declared Christ to be righteous. And in so doing, condemns, passes judgment upon the world's unrighteousness. And there's a third expression, isn't there? Into verse 11, concerning judgment. Because the ruler of this world is judged. Who is the ruler of this world? Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He has been judged. You see, the power of death is sin. The power of sin is where Satan finds all his power. And when the Lord Jesus became sin for us at Calvary's cross, And paid the penalty for our sin by dying on our behalf. He eviscerated Satan of all his power over us, passing condemnation upon him. And by consequence, passing condemnation on all those who are his children. And so the Spirit of God is sent forth by the resurrected Christ. Why? Because he has something to do in the world. He's going to convict the world concerning its sin, concerning its righteousness, and concerning its judgment. We see it fulfilled in part in the book of Acts. Right there in Acts chapter 2 when Peter preaches, we see the Spirit convicting the world of sin. Peter says, this Jesus, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. We see the Spirit there convicting the world of true righteousness. Peter declares, God raised him up. Declaring that what you did was the essence of evil. 
And he declared his son to be righteousness with power through the resurrection from the dead. And there we see the Holy Spirit convincing and convicting the world of judgment. As Peter quotes that precious psalm where the father says to the son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What was the response? 3,000 souls were saved. This ministry of condemnation on the part of some went further, didn't it? To this ministry of conviction whereby the Holy Spirit worked in the consciousnesses of men and brought about the acknowledgement of their sin and of their own unrighteousness and of this judgment hanging over their heads and 3,000 souls were converted out of how many who heard the preaching of the gospel. And so you see this twofold response as the Spirit is sent forth and as the Spirit performs this work through the preaching ministry The office of preacher, the office of pastor, as the gospel is declared, a resurrected Christ is proclaimed, the Spirit of God goes forth. The result is twofold, only one of two possibilities. As he works in the hearts of men and as he condemns concerning sin, concerning righteousness, concerning judgment, there are those who harden their hearts, thereby sealing their own condemnation, sealing their own judgment. And are those, there are those whose hearts are softened. And as they see their sinfulness in having rejected Christ to that point and in having lived a godless life, as they see their unrighteousness in marked contrast to the righteousness of the Lord Jesus, and as they become aware and conscious of this, this judgment, the fact that they stand condemned, that they are a child of wrath. The Spirit of God works convincing the mind and opening the heart. And there's a turning from sin, repentance, and a turning to Christ, faith. And there's a clinging to the cross of Christ. And there is a pleading for the righteousness of Christ that they may be found in that righteousness and in that righteousness worthy in Christ and accepted by the Father. Do you understand that's what's going on this morning? That's what I'm doing. That's what a preacher does every time he opens God's Word. The Spirit of truth has come. And the Spirit accompanies the public proclamation of the Word. And the Spirit convicts the world. The world stands condemned concerning sin, concerning righteousness, concerning judgment. And the call and the invitation goes out. Repent and believe for the forgiveness of sins. And place your faith and trust in the only Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But you see, there's a third relationship in these verses, is between the helper and the believer. Begins in verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Check that. Pause there. I still have many things to say to you. Let me repeat it one more time. I still have many things to say to you. That, that, that is of extreme importance. 
Back in chapter 14, the Lord Jesus has said to his disciples that when the helper comes, he will bring all things to your remembrance. What things? The life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. Found where? In the gospel accounts. Here he says what? That when the Holy Spirit comes, I still have many things to say to you. And the Spirit of God will be the vehicle by way of illumination and inspiration, whereby his apostles will write down and pen not merely what is brought to remembrance, the Gospels, but will, re- will pen what they can't bear at that moment, but will be revealed to them subsequently, namely the epistles. And in these two expressions, bring to remembrance... And still have many things to say to you. We have here in, in, in germinal form the New Testament canon, the word of truth, that which the spirit of truth has revealed and given to us by which he speaks, through which our exalted Lord and Savior Jesus Christ speaks to his people, speaks to his church. This is why I get all hot and bothered when, 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 I, when I engage with people, speak with people who say, you know, Uh, That's what Peter believed, or that was Paul's theology. But all I want to hear about is what the Lord Jesus says. Uh, Red-letter Christians, popular movement today, will just throw out the rest of the New Testament. And all that matters is what you find in the Gospels, the actual words of Jesus. Friend, understand this. If it was written by Paul, if it was written by Peter, if it was written by Jude, if it is found in the New Testament, it is what Jesus says. He said it, he declared it, having ascended on high, having sent the Holy Spirit. I have much to say to you. It's coming. You can't bear it now. And it comes by way of revelation. I remember years ago sitting in this cafe in northern Uganda. I was there on a work assignment there with a friend, a colleague. We got into a hot theological debate and we were taking stands in different positions. I quoted the Apostle Paul. His response was simply that. That's what Paul said. Uh, That's what Paul wrote. I want to know what Jesus says. I didn't know where to go. What Paul wrote is what Jesus says. What John writes in his epistles or Peter writes in his epistles or Luke writes in his gospel account is what Jesus says. It is the fulfillment of this promise that he makes to his disciples. And then he adds to it, verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes. He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. He could. He's God, the third person of the Trinity, God, the spirit, but God, the father, God, the son, God, the spirit. There's a unity of essence. There's a unity of purpose. In other words, what he teaches, what he says will not be inconsistent with what the father has said, what the son has said, but perfectly consistent. Why? Because whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. This is how we know the spirit is working. Wherever Christ is made much of, you can be sure the Holy Spirit is behind it. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. 
great words right there at the outset of verse 13. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Not mathematics, not geography, not science. Truth concerning God, concerning the gospel, concerning godliness, concerning salvation. That when the Spirit comes, He will guide you into all that truth. You see, when the Lord Jesus, when the Lord Jesus walked here on earth, He, He, He wore so many different hats and fulfilled so many different roles and responsibilities. And one, one that is often overlooked is, is the role He fulfilled as the incarnate Word of God. That as the Lord Jesus walked on this earth, He stretched one arm back over the centuries, so to speak. And he authenticated all that had been revealed before him. He acknowledged the tripartite division of the Hebrew scriptures, the law, the prophets and the Psalms or the writings. He quoted extensively from it. He built his argument, structured his preaching on that Old Testament canon. He authenticated it. And that's why we can receive the Old Testament canon with full assurance, knowing it is the word of God, because the incarnate word of God confirmed it. To be so. You see, at the same time, he stretched another arm ahead of time. And he encompassed the ministry of his apostles in setting and establishing the foundation of the church. And he said to them, As the Father sends me, so I send you. And he bestows upon them apostolic authority. And it is through apostolic writing and apostolic sanction, the Spirit of God leads them into all truth. And through them, the Lord Jesus, he he authorizes what has come to be known as the New Testament canon, authenticating what came before him, authorizing what comes after him as the incarnate word of God and bringing the two together, the Old Testament, the New Testament. And here it is, the Spirit of God guiding us into All truth. The revelation complete. God has spoken. The spirit of truth has completed this revelation. The mind of God. And now the spirit of God takes that foundation of the apostles and prophets. And he impresses God's truth, his word upon us. He teaches us. He illuminates us. Grants us understanding so that we can hear the voice of God in the word of God. I hear the spirit talking all the time. If I just left it at that, you might think I'm crazy. I hear the spirit talking all the time whenever I open the Bible. And only when I open the Bible. I hear the spirit of truth speaking through the word of truth. All truth. Leading me in the pathways of righteousness. What a great and precious gift God has given us. It is complete. It is complete. Listen to the words of B.B. Warfield. We rest our acceptance of the New Testament scriptures as authoritative. Not on the fact that they are the product of the revelation age of the church. For so are many other books which we do not thus accept. But on the fact. That God's authoritative agents in founding the church gave them as authoritative to the church. It is complete. No new revelation. 
We can build on that. It is inerrant. Remember years ago, my first year teaching at Bible college, I think the first or second course I taught, bibliology, biblical evidences, a 17-year-old young buck straight out of high school, there he was, Bible college, know-it-all, first day of class, bibliology, the Bible's full of errors. Incidentally, I, I praise God, God got a hold of that young man's life, actually saved him. <laughs> At Bible college, he wasn't a believer, it saved him. He's now a missionary in a Muslim country, which will remain unnamed. But how often I have heard that. Oh, the Bible is full of errors, mistakes. I've been studying the Bible for 25 years. I've yet to find an error. Yet to find a mistake. F.S. Arnott, who was a missionary in Angola years ago, he recorded the following, the following experience in his sojourn. He says, I was at a big Dutch trading house in Bengala, Angola, the west coast of Africa where 30 or 40 Europeans had congregated for a commercial conference. A Dutchman at the head of the table greeted me, saying, the Bible is not believed in anymore. I know all about it. I know all about the mistakes and errors. I replied, I shall be glad to prove to all of you that the Bible is true. Allow me to fetch mine. I did so, sat down at the table, and asked the man to mention what portion was untrue. Oh, it's been so long since I looked at it, I don't remember. You read, I'll tell you when we get there. I began to read the first chapter of Romans, solemnly. By the time I had finished, there were only six men left. The man at the head of the table drew his hat from under his chair and muttered that there was someone calling him and left. There was no one calling him. But that was the last of the discussion that was to prove the Bible untrue. It is inerrant. We can add to that thirdly, it is final. It is authoritative. Chicago's statement on biblical inerrancy, Holy Scripture, being God's own word, written by men, prepared and superintended by His Spirit, the Spirit of truth, is of infallible divine authority in all matters upon which it touches. It is to be believed as God's instruction and in all it affirms, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, and embraced as God's pledge in all that it promises. Not very popular today. On the one hand, we're bombarded by the rationalist who has elevated his, his puny mind above God's revelation and the spirit, spirit of truth and sits as judge and juror over the Word of God. A book which has withstood all attacks, all assailed from every side for centuries now, for millennia now. And yet the rationalist cry continues today. It's alive and well, whereby he has set his mind above God's word. Under, failing to understand, failing to grasp that the word of God is not on trial. He is. He does not stand in judgment on Scripture, the Bible, the word of God. He stands condemned. And the Spirit of God goes forth condemning of sin. And of righteousness and concerning judgment. And on the other side, we're assailed and bombarded by the mystic. Oh, God's telling me. I have a private hotline with God. It's God's given me this new revelation and I hear these voices and God is telling me. All the while undermining the absolute authority of the word of God. Contradicting God's holy word. And how we need wisdom in these days. To reject the rationalist on the one side, to reject the mystic on the other side and understand that Christ has ascended. Christ has sent the spirit of truth. Christ has guided into all truth and we have that truth in our hands. 
It is this book. And whenever we hope in it, we hear the voice of God to man. And we can add to that a, very for, a fourth very important point. It is sufficient. It is sufficient. The words of Paul in 2 Timothy 3.17. All scriptures breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching. That is to reveal the will of God. For reproof. That is to reveal the problem areas in our lives. For correction. To reveal the solutions to those problems. And for training in righteousness to reveal those things which constitute a godly life. That the man of God may be competent, mature, equipped for every good work. It is sufficient. Turn with me just for a moment as we wrap it up this morning. To Peter's second epistle. The Lord Jesus still speaking. I hope you're convinced of that this morning. This falls under the banner of those things which the Lord still had to say to the disciples. Second Peter chapter one. And listen to these verses from the pen of Peter, the disciple of the Lord. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What's he referring to? The Mount of Transfiguration. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. Oh, that's amazing. I wish I were there. I wish I had been there. I wish I had been there to see the essential deity of the Lord Jesus Christ revealed as his humanity. The veil is drawn back. I wish I had been there to see that Shekinah glory descend upon him. I wish I had been there to see Moses and Elijah. I wish I had been there to hear the very voice of God the Father. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Oh, if only I had been there. What does Peter go on to say? Verse 19. And we have something more sure. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. We have something better than what Peter, James and John experienced on the Mount of Transfiguration. We have something better than any of the disciples ever had that side of of the cross. It is to your advantage that I go away. The relationship between the helper and the Lord in the covenant of redemption, the relationship between the helper and the world in his ministry of conviction through the proclamation of the gospel, and the relationship between the helper and the believer that he has given us all the truth. And he teaches us every time we open his word. And how that behooves us to give our utmost to this precious gift, this precious treasure, the faith that has once for all been delivered to the saints. Our Heavenly Father, we do ask this morning that you might make us students of this book. We do ask that you would grant us that diligence to probe into the 
depths of the Bible. We pray that you would convince our hearts of the absolute necessity and sufficiency of the scriptures. We're so thankful for the spirit of truth who dwells in us. And do pray that he would lead us into that truth as he teaches us your word. Make us effectual doers, not mere hearers or listeners. Again, we pray that you would bring our lives into conformity with all that you have revealed in your holy book. We thank you for the person and work of the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he is exalted on high. We praise you that we serve a risen Savior. And we rejoice in him this day. We delight in him. We proclaim his glories. We ascribe to him all honor. And we do so in his own mighty and worthy name. Amen.